Well, friends, uh, let me invite you to turn with me once again to the Old Testament book of Micah. Uh, this time, Micah chapter 6. We're, uh, we've been working our way through Micah chapter by chapter, and today we reach the, the penultimate chapter, uh, Micah chapter 6. And you'll recall that Micah has been um, alternating between oracles of judgment and words of promise and comfort to the, the people of God. And Micah chapter 6 really focuses once again on, uh, on the judgment of God. It, it reads, as you'll see here in just a minute, uh, like a lawsuit. Uh, it reads like a lawsuit of God bringing charges against a wayward people. And so as we read, be on the lookout for, for three aspects of, of God's lawsuit here. God is arguing his case against his wayward people, and there are at least three parts to this divine lawsuit. There is, first of all, the indictment in verses 1 through 5, with some more specifications or supporting evidence that we'll see in verses 9 through 12, the, the divine indictment. Uh, and then in verses 6 through 7, there's the response of the people. We might say the plea of the people in response to the divine indictment. We're going to see it's not a very good response that the people offer. It's verses 6 and 7. And, and then in verses 13 through 16, we have the divine verdict of the judge as he hands down his sentence. Okay, so there's, a, there's an outline for you, the divine uh, indictment, the response of the people, and the divine verdict. Uh, let's, let's turn our attention now to the, the reading of God's word, picking it up in Micah chapter 6, verse 1, and let's give our ears to the hearing of God's holy word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with Calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. 
hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness and the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. And there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab. And you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Well, last week I'm sure many of you saw on the news that former police officer Derek Chauvin was sentenced to 22 and a half years uh, in prison for the murder of George Floyd. And if you were paying attention to responses, uh, you will have noticed that responses to that decision varied widely. Uh, on the one hand, there were, there were folks saying that the sentence was far too severe. And on the other hand, there were people saying it wasn't nearly severe enough So there are some strong disagreements about that particular uh, decision. But I wonder if you you also noticed that implicitly everyone shares something in agreement wherever they come down on their opinion of that decision. Everyone is implicitly recognizing that earthly justice systems do not render perfect justice that justice systems in this world at times can even be guilty of terrible miscarriages of justice. Well, here we are in Micah chapter 6, and we're in a different courtroom. We're in the heavenly courtroom of God himself, and he is also prosecuting the case. And if you like, it's the case of the Lord versus the people. That's the case here, the case of the Lord Verse the people. And in this courtroom, there is no bias. There are no faulty assumptions. There's no subjectivity in handing down a verdict. And I need to say at the start that that's really bad news. That's really bad news if we are the accused and the charges of God against us cannot be answered. So let's have a look at this passage, Micah chapter 6. First of all, thinking about the divine indictment in verses 1 through 5. What are the charges God brings? You'll you'll notice the courtroom language right away if you have a look at verses 1 and 2. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains. So the 
the whole of creation itself is being summoned to bear a witness. And then we read the indictment of the Lord. For the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So imagine it for a moment. You're you're at home and the doorbell rings and you you open up your, your door and there's a courier. And they hand you an envelope. And you're being served. You're being summoned to court. And you find out, however, that you are actually the accused. And you're being called to enter your plea. And God himself has an indictment against you. You can see God's case in, in verse 3. God's case against his people. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Now, there's the issue. This is the issue. God is making it crystal clear. The people have grown weary of God. Oh, it's not that they have stopped being religious. It's not that they have stopped doing religious things, as we'll see here in just a moment. It's not that they have stopped talking like religious people. It's just that they've grown tired of God. They don't really want anything to do with God. They, they see religion as something to make them feel comfortable and safe. Something to perhaps ease their troubled conscience. But they don't want anything really to do with God and his ways. They've become fed up with God. And in verses 4 and 5, God reminds them of all that he's done for them. Uh, He points them in verse 4 back to the exodus when he brought uh, them out from the land of Egypt and redeemed them from the house of slavery and provided for them, provided leaders for them. The people, however, in Micah's day, no longer saw themselves as a people who were once enslaved, living in darkness, completely helpless, unable to do anything to set themselves free until God in His grace redeemed them and brought them out of that captivity, set them on a level place, and set them free. And then in verse 5, He he reminds them about the, the wilderness journey that uh, the people of Israel made when they came out of bondage on their way to the land of promise. And he reminds them of the conquest and their entry into the, the promised land. Oh, my people, remember, Micah says, what Balak king of Moab devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened at Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. You remember the story of Balak, king of Moab. He, he hired... Balaam to curse Israel. And when Balaam attempted to do that, what, the, what happened? The Lord sovereignly intervened so that all that Balaam could do was actually speak a word of blessing upon Israel. And eventually, the, uh, Moab was handed uh, over to Israel and they were defeated at Shittim. And then when they came to the borders of the land of promise at Gilgal, remember what happened there? The, the Lord uh, supernaturally parted the waters of the river Jordan, just as he had done a generation ago 
for the people as they were being brought out of Egypt when he parted the Red Sea so that they could uh, escape their enemies and pass through on dry ground. God is saying to them, remember, remember these redemptive events. Remember the things that I have done for you in my grace. Now this word remember, it is so, so important. And we talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. Remember does not imply that the people had simply forgotten these historical details and they, they just needed a fresh reminder. That's not what Micah is saying. God is, God is calling the people in Micah's generation to reappropriate for themselves the story of redemption, to place themselves by faith in this reality of God's saving work. To see themselves as those who by grace were brought out of slavery into freedom. So you see what God is saying. Here is a generation facing a Syrian invasion and exile. Centuries after the, the physical exodus out of Egypt took place. And God says to this generation, I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you. I took care of you. I provided for you. I displayed my power to save and defeated your enemies. So you see, the reality of God's redemptive work for his people should have been informing and shaping how they were living in the present. Remember, that is, by faith live as those who have been set free and been called to be God's people. You can see then how this is God's call to us today as well. God calls his people today to remember his mighty work of redemption, which Israel's redemption in the Exodus figured. See, God God has called us in his grace out of Out of Egypt, out of this world, and by the blood of our Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has delivered us and set us free from sin and death and judgment. And you see, those are not merely historical facts that we affirm. It is a reality that we enter into by faith, which determines the whole course of our lives. And so to be weary with God, to be tired of God today, just as it didn't in Micah's day, it doesn't mean that you outright reject the historical facts of God's redeeming work. It doesn't mean that you reject the facts of Christ's life and death and resurrection. They just don't matter to you. The the old, old story of salvation is something you've heard before and you've moved on. What God has done for his people in Christ isn't, in fact, the defining reality that determines the course of your life. You see, we can do the very same thing the people of God were doing in Micah's day, and we need to remember not to just mentally recall details, 
but to enter into by faith, to take hold of for ourselves, to appropriate the reality of God's redeeming work for ourselves. But the church in Micah's day was having nothing of it. They would, they would rather be religious on their, their own terms. And if you take a look at verses 9 through 12, you, you see some of the, the fruit of their rebellion and rejection of the Lord and his grace. So, so what does weariness with God do in a life when it begins to bear fruit? What well, could look like this. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked? And the scant measures that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. You see, God here is, is pressing his case and now he's giving evidence in support of his indictment. And here's the evidence of a wayward heart that has rejected the Lord. What does it do? It, it turns to wickedness, scant scales, deceitful weights. It's full of lie, lies, deceptions. And Micah is reminding us here of a foundational biblical principle that we, we need to make sure we understand. And the biblical principle is simply this. You become like what you worship. You become like what you love and you serve. Psalm 115 says this outright. That uh, those who worship idols become like them. And so for either restoration, in the case of loving and serving the true God, or for ruin, in the case of worshiping and serving idols, we become like what we serve. We are profoundly shaped by the God that we love and serve. So then ask, what happens when money and status and possessions and, and um, success become the great objects of your love? Well, they become your master, and it's not long before they start asking you to cross the line in their service. And very soon, the the boundaries of of God's word that, that ought to restrain us and ought to direct us in our minds become very, very restrictive and narrow. And we start to think, man, there's got to be a better way than God's way. You know, we may not... We may not dare say it, but, but we live with that kind of thinking. And inwardly, we, we rationalize and excuse while we begin living for things like money or success or pleasure or status. They become idols that we serve and it shapes us in profound ways. Think about it. If it's riches that we live for, our hearts become hardened like the coins that we treasure. They become callous to the needs of others. And we, we become willing to cut corners, to skim a little off the top, to make 
dishonest gain. After all, you know, everyone else does it. And look, the government doesn't really need to know all about my income, right? Unjust scales, wicked measures. You become like what you worship. I think about one of the idols that's so prominent in our own society today, uh, the idol of self. You know, the idol of self says, you are your own God. You are the master of your fate. You, so you do you, right? Fulfill your heart's desire. Don't let anybody tell you what's right or wrong or how you should think about something. What's most important is that you actualize your feelings. Otherwise, you are denying your very self. That is one of the gods of our age, isn't it? You, know, you do you so long as you don't harm anybody else. And what happens is we bow down to that idol without realizing it. We become enslaved to twisted and depraved desires that rule our hearts. Without even realizing it, we enslave ourselves to our own desires, and we become, if I can put it this way, dehumanized. Less than what God created us to be. Incapable of loving others the way that God calls us to love and care for them because we have made ourselves the center of the universe. And so you hear the charges God is filing against his people. Again, it's, it's not that we aren't religious. It's just that so many are fed up with God and his ways. And they feel in their hearts that in fact God is holding them back. That he's actually restraining them from happiness and fulfillment. The old, old story of redemption has become yesterday's news. And so instead of being defined by God's saving grace, they've turned in Micah's generation to things like money, power, property, and status instead. And God presents the irrefutable evidence and presses his case against them. And I wonder, dear friends, as we seek to hear this word for ourselves, if, if we were the ones in the dock and God was pressing this case against us, how might we respond? Well, I think we might be tempted to say that we can somehow please God with something we do, with some religious activity, with some prayer that we offer, some sacrifice that we make in our lives. And as we're going to see, that's exactly what Micah's generation did in response to this divine indictment. So let's take a look at this. Secondly, the plea entered by the people. Have a look at verses 6 and 7, where Micah here is anticipating the response of the people. And here's what they say. <clears throat> With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin 
of my soul. Now here's what they're essentially doing. Okay? They're taking out their checkbooks and they're saying to God, okay God, what's it going to take to get you off my back? Tell me. I'll write the check right now so I can go on living my life on my own terms. They're saying, just tell me what it's going to cost to make all of this go away. You see, they're treating God like one of the corrupt officials that they very likely were used to dealing with, someone that they could bribe and simply pay off. And notice the currency that they think God is interested in dealing in. They think God is interested in dealing with the currency of religious performance. You notice this escalating scale of religious performance that Micah outlines for us in these verses? People are saying, okay, God, how about some burnt offerings, some calves a year old? Will that do the trick? No? Okay. Fair enough. How about thousands of rivers of oil and thousands of rams? Will, will that do it? Will that get you off our case? No? I mean, you drive a hard bargain, God, but okay. Notice the last bargaining chip. It's shocking. I mean, it is. It speaks of how Micah's generation had become just like the nations of the world around them at that time. And you see how easily they, they slide from the kind of offerings that, that could be recognized in the light of the, the law of Moses right into pagan rites and rituals. Sacrifices that would have been offered to the god of Molech one's firstborn child. Just to be clear, we're talking here about child sacrifice. And here's what I think Micah is getting at by bringing up this despicable practice. The heart of the people is basically the same as a corrupt businessman who's been caught red-handed, and he says in response, okay, just tell me what it's going to cost to make all of this go away. They don't, they don't care if it's biblical or pagan. They'll perform whatever rites they have to to get squared with God so they can get right back to living life their way. They will do just about anything. They will give just about anything except, of course, themselves. And it's disturbing to see this, but, but the truth is this is the default response of our sinful hearts, isn't it? When we're, when we're honest with ourselves, don't, don't you find this to be a fitting description of how we often try to deal with God's indictment of us? You know, when my conscience stings and I feel convicted by my waywardness and sin, how am I prone to respond? By turning repentance into penance. Right? By looking for some sort of penance to perform, some payment to make, some good work to do that will somehow offset my failure and satisfy God. But I'm not really turning from my sin back to God. I'm just trying to pay Him off so I can keep doing what it is I want to keep doing. But let's be, let's be absolutely clear about this today, dear friends. That is not Christianity. That is not the way of the gospel. That is the way 
of man-made, self-willed religion. It's paganism through and through. Listen, if, if your God can be bribed with religious performances or some do-gooding so that he will leave you alone to live your life on your terms, then please understand that your God is a fraud. It is not the God of the Bible. It is not the God who is. And so take a look at, with me at, at verse 8, because you have to imagine this court scene, okay? God, is, God has issued his indictment. The people have offered their response in verses 6 and 7. And it's as if Mike has been sitting in the back of the courtroom, listening in on the proceedings. And after hearing the response of the people, he can't take it anymore. And so he stands up and he talks in the middle of the proceedings. And he says, he's told you what is good. He's told you what he requires of you. Oh man, what is, what is good? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. See, God is not interested in religious performance as a work of merit. It, it doesn't matter if it's according to his word or according to idolatrous superstition. He has no interest in religiosity if your heart remains unchanged. See, God wants people who, who love him and that shows up in the way that you live. Because you become like what you worship. That's what Micah is saying here in verse 8. Notice how Micah begins when he speaks up. He's told you, oh man, what is good. Let's just pause there and ask the question. And learn from Micah's generation. Okay, How did it get this bad? How did the people reach this point of just total spiritual disaster. Well, Micah tells you. It's when people stop listening to what God has said. When people have closed ears to the voice of the Lord. A closed heart and a closed Bible. That's how you get here. That's what Micah is saying. And what is it that God is looking for? What are, the, what are the marks of a heart that is surrendered to the redeeming grace of God? It will show a concern for justice. It will display kindness. And it will walk humbly with God. He says... Let's unpack those quickly, those three things. He says there's to be justice in our dealings with one another. The, the Hebrew word here is, it means something like order or rule. It's, it's, it's reflective of how God himself acts in his works. The righteousness of God, Micah is saying, is to be reflected in our dealings with one another if our hearts are right with the Lord. And there's kindness. You might notice that the word there is the Hebrew word chesed. It's often translated uh, steadfast love in the ESV. Others, loving kindness. We could even just say grace as a, as a translation of this word chesed. 
This is how God has treated his people with hesed, covenant love. He has, he has poured out upon them his loving kindness. And Micah is saying, having received such grace, then we will show this grace to others in our lives. And, and then there's a humble walk with God because we live with the knowledge that, well, we didn't create ourselves and we didn't save ourselves. Right? We're, we're not here, we're not alive today because we willed ourselves into existence. No, God gave us life. And we're not here today because we saved ourselves. We, we're here because God called us in his grace to the Lord Jesus Christ. He saved us. So we didn't make ourselves. We didn't save ourselves. Instead, we live as Christians with the knowledge that we are, in and of ourselves, bankrupt sinners without hope, save in God's sovereign mercy. And that means that we cast ourselves on him in humility, depending on him, walking with him each and every day. And so you see, Micah is saying to the people of his generation, look, your, your offerings, they won't help you. In our, in our own terms, you could say, uh, you know, a, a, you could go ahead and write a big old fat check to the church budget, and it won't do anything to change the condition of your heart. You can perform religious activities until you're blue in the face, and it will not make a lick of difference in your standing before the divine tribunal. Because God is looking at your heart like an open book. And God cares about what's real. He cares about reality. It's not about how religious you can be. It's not about how much you can do for him. See, Micah's generation was prepared to go through any kind of religious performance if it would appease God and get him off their backs. You see, God's concern is that you appropriate, is that you make your own by faith his redeeming grace, that you embrace the gospel and so find yourself being changed from the inside out, becoming like the God that you love. See, in Christ, you come to Christ and you're trusting in Him, you will find that the, the things you once desired most, the things that you lived for, are now seen in a different light and they become it's insignificant in a way that they weren't before. You begin to desire to, to live for the pleasure of God. And that means that you begin to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with God. You no longer seek to bribe God because he's loved you and in his grace he's, he's pardoned you. He's placed his name upon you. He set you free so that you can live for his glory. And so we have to ask ourselves this question. Is Micah, as he's describing the generation in his own day, is Micah describing any of us? Would this be our plea to the divine indictment, trying to bribe God? Look, God, I'm a good person. I do good things. I go to church. 
I show kindness to my neighbor. I'm there for people when they need me. Have, have you been trying to do that? Are you here in church today because you're trying to do that? Doing the religious thing to try to be right with God while you go on unchanged, living life however you please. Please understand, there's no amount of religiosity or do-gooding that you could ever offer to bribe God. We see that here so clearly if you take a look at verses 13 through 16. Verses 13 through 16, where God hands down his sentence. And it's recalling the the covenant curses promised back in places like uh, Deuteronomy 28. If God's people broke covenant with him, he would send judgments on them. That's exactly what Micah is saying is, is, is happening. He's going to strike them with a grievous blow, verse 13. Famine will overtake them, verse 14. The sword, crops will fail, verse 15. Because they walked in the counsels of Omri and the works of Ahab. Now let's try to just take that in for a second. First Kings 16 says that King Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did more evil, greater evil, than any king who had come before him. That's a pretty bad legacy, isn't it? And then comes his son Ahab. And Ahab says, as it were, okay, Dad, I see you. I'm going to raise the stakes, and I'm going to be even more wicked than you. And 1 Kings, a few verses later, tells us that Ahab did even greater wickedness than his father, Omri. And Micah is saying that the people of his generation followed in their footsteps, obeying the pattern of life set by these two kings. And the inevitable just result is the judgment of God. So there's no escaping it. You can't avoid it. An unrepentant heart, a heart that refuses the grace of God, refuses pleading guilty before the divine tribunal, casting oneself on the mercy of God and Jesus Christ alone, a heart that is committed to that way of life, dear friends, has nothing left to it but the judgment of God. That's what Micah is saying here. It's a divine sentence. Please understand, he is telling you, God is telling you right now, ahead of time, if if this is you, if this is your life, refusing grace, living life on your own terms, just like the world, this is what will happen to you. Judgment. And it won't be a surprise because God has told you. He has said to you beforehand what would take place. Do you see what God is doing here in his word? This is a gospel warning to flee from the wrath to come and to find refuge and safety and forgiveness and pardon and new life in Jesus Christ. One final thing we need to mention. I wonder if, if as, you, as you read this 
with me. Did you notice the tragic irony in this passage? There is a tragic irony in the plea of the people, the response of the people to the Lord's indictment. Here they are saying, look, we'll go to this length, God. We will sacrifice our firstborn for the sin of our souls. You see the tragic irony in that. What does the gospel tell us? The gospel tells us that God himself has promised to bear the covenant curse of his people. How did he do that? How did God bear the covenant curse of his people so that they could be forgiven and set free? He did it, dear friends, by delivering up his firstborn son. By giving him up to the cross where Jesus, who was sinless, holy, and undefiled, became sin and was treated as the greatest sinner who had ever lived. And the wrath and the curse of God fell on him as he willingly laid down his life, bearing the covenant curse of his people to set them free from sins, guilt, and power. So you see the tragic irony here. Here are, here are God's own covenant people willing self-made religion. When God is saying, I've done it all for you. Trust in my son. Flee to the cross. You see, the wonder of the gospel is not that you must do your best and if it's somehow good enough, God will accept you on those terms. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you are helplessly enslaved to Satan and sin and idolatry and you cannot do anything to save yourself. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, has given his son to the cross and paid in full so that anyone who trusts in him does not come under the wrath and condemnation of God. You see, my friends, before this divine indictment, on the one hand, you must plead guilty. You must plead guilty to the charge. But then you see what the gospel enables us to do. It enables us to point to the cross where the sentence was paid in full, where judgment was exacted, where divine justice was fully satisfied. And if you're doing that, God in the gospel declares you not guilty. Not just that, but righteous. Not because of righteousness that you have in and of yourself, but because of the righteousness of God's very own Son. And so if you haven't done that, if you haven't pled guilty and pointed to the cross, why don't you do that today? Call out to God for this mercy to be found in Christ, the righteous Son, who bore the covenant curse. That's what the gospel calls us to do. Trust in Him. Do it today. Don't delay. Because the reality is, dear friends, apart from Jesus Christ, God has an open and shut case against you. He does. And there is no counter evidence that you're going to 
bring before him that's going to get the charges dropped. And there's nothing that you can offer that will enable you to get a not guilty verdict. There's only one thing you can do. And that is to point to the cross and there find forgiveness and there be counted in the right with God. Because it's the way of the cross of Jesus that we find forgiveness and acceptance with God. Because it's in Jesus that we have this promise that God gave his only son to be made sin for us. So that we might be counted the righteousness of God in him. So trust in Him to be your redeeming Savior and know that there is full pardon and new life to be found as we walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you that in your Son, your indictment against us is fully answered. We are guilty sinners. We're not going to attempt this morning to to bribe you any longer. Maybe why some of us have come this morning, but we don't want to do that ever again. We don't want to try to pay you off with a bit of religion. The truth is we are guilty. We've loved and served idols. We've gone our own way. At times we've grown weary and tired of you. Would you please forgive us for the sake of Jesus? We plead this morning his blood and his righteousness and Through him, we ask that you would wash us clean and renew us after his image so that we do justice and show kindness and walk humbly with you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.